something is bubbling among women today. Women crave honest stories that entertain, motivate, and move them. Women want reinforcement that they are not alone in feeling the way that they do and that they can feel good about their prospects. Stories and Strategies for Women podcast will share riveting stories about amazing women. I'm your host, Claudine Walk. A good story well told is powerful. A good story can motivate. A good story can inspire action. Claudine here. We are very excited to welcome a new sponsor. It's iBobs at iBobs.com. I discovered iBobs years ago when I needed readers. If I needed to wear glasses, I wanted them to be fun to wear and fun to buy. iBobs fits the bill and makes buying glasses super easy. Wondering what frames look the best on you? Check out the style quiz on the site to help you find the perfect frames. I love my latest pair called What Inheritance? A cool light blue color, but my go-to favorite pair is called Clearly in Purple. iBobs is offering a special discount for Stories and Strategies for Women listeners. Enter promo code STORIESANDSTRAT10, spell the end, at the checkout to receive a 10% discount today. That's iBobs.com. Welcome to Stories and Strategies for Women. With us today is Julie Metz. Julie Metz is a New York Times bestselling author. She has written for publications including The New York Times, Salon, Dom, Redbook, and Glamour. She's received fellowships at Yaddo, the McDowell Colony, the Virginia Center for the Creative Arts, and the Vermont Studio Center. Julie is a graphics designer and an art director. She lives with her family and two cats in the Hudson Valley. Welcome, Julie. Thank you so much. I'm really pleased to be here. Thank you. Thank you for being with us. So your second book, Eve and Eve, was just released. Congratulations. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's been quite a whirlwind week. So well, I bet it has. <laughs> yeah. I, and, and we have you. Yay. I'm so excited. So your first book, Perfection, is an all-time favorite book of mine. As I went back over my notes, one of the ways that I described it was Metz writes with brutal honesty and passion. You can feel her pain, her anger, and her rage. A great storyteller, Metz unravels her tale a little bit at a time. She reports and investigates at the same time. It occurred to me that the description is true of both your books, true crime with a personal detective journey. So why don't you tell us about your new release, Eva and Eve? Yes, so um, that's, I would say, that you've identified an important connection between my two books. Um, uh, Eva and Eve is a personal story about my mother's family, and um, it tells the story of how this family uh, lived in Vienna until 1938 um, uh, as part of a very vibrant Jewish community in Vienna. And then uh, when... Hitler and the Nazis took over and absorbed Austria into the German Empire, everything just changed radically and immediately. And um, it was very difficult to get out of Vienna um, to get an American visa. One of the reasons was that there were very restrictive quotas. So getting an American visa was a bit like winning the lottery. Um, my mother's uh, my mother's two brothers were sent to England in the fall of 1938 because there was an imminent threat to them. Um, my mother chose to stay behind. Uh, that always, 
Um, I always wondered about that, why she stayed behind. Um, but she was determined to do so. And if you'd ever met my mom, you would understand <laughs> that she was a very forceful person. <laughs> so even at 10, she knew what she wanted. Um, so she stayed behind with her parents um, by miracle, persistence, all kinds of uh, uh, connections that my grandfather may have used to, to get appointment at the consulate. They were able to get out. Um, and they arrived in New York in uh, 1940 and had to remake their lives as American immigrants. So it's very much uh, an immigration story um, and uh, kind of relevant, I think, for this time when we're thinking a lot about immigrants and who they are and whether they belong here. And of course, the answer is that's what our country is. We're just a, a lot of immigrants <laughs> from other places. So. Um, so I hope that that will resonate for people whose families have come from other places and, you know, that, you know, that feeling of what it is to be an American, um, I think is very important right now. It's, it's amazing that you grew up knowing, and you write this in the book, knowing that your mom had this kind of amazing history and she shared some of it with you, but she didn't, she didn't share all of it with you. And, you know, when you're growing up, you know, you're kind of interested in your own life and you're not, you know, so interested in, in your mom, your mom's life. Um, but sh you found out later that uh, there was so much more to the story. Can you tell us a little bit about what tipped you off that there was a little more? Well, in a way it, you know, as, as you mentioned, my mother had shared some stories, and I think this is quite common for the second generation survivor families. There's sort of um, a limit, and you sense where the limit is, where the, the comfort li limit is. And so the stories my mother shared, they tended to be the same stories. She tended to tell them the same way, whether to us, uh, to friends, I would sometimes hear her telling them at a dinner party, for example. Um, and then when she gave a recording to the Leo Beck Institute uh, in 2004, she told the stories the same way. What happened was that after she died, um, sometime after she died, my father asked me and my sister-in-law to start gathering up my mother's belongings. Um, and I went into her private drawers. These were the the places where we were never allowed to go was where she kept her slips and her nightgowns. And clearly she knew nobody else was going into that drawer. I pulled out the drawer and removed the, you know, the, the nightgowns and way, way in the back of the drawer, I found this book. And at the time I had no idea what it was. It's um, a small keepsake book. I guess we'd call it an autograph book. You have your friends and your your family and maybe your teachers and your school chums would write something. And my sister-in-law uh, reads German, so she was able to read some of the inscriptions and they were clearly a farewell. It was a book of farewells. She bought it sometime in 1938, probably when it became clear that they were going to have to leave. And then the book ends in the spring of 1940. The last inscription is the day before they left. So because I've compared it to the passport. So this book, uh, they came with two trunks. And you can imagine you, you couldn't pack a lot. So choices had to be made. 
I think this book was one of the very few personal possessions that she was able to bring with her. And when we found that book, I showed it to my dad and I asked him if he'd ever seen it before. He said he'd never seen it. Wow. Never seen it in 54 years of their life together. Wow. So it was just that book, I think, was holding the secrets and a lot of pain and and loss and, you know, all kinds of emotions. So uh, that book was really, finding that book was really the clue that there was more. Right. And that was sort of how I started. Of course, when I started, I wasn't planning to write a book at all, which is how my first book started. So... <laughs> So, um, and, and it was sort of a process of excavation. Um, I spent, I interviewed my dad. Uh, he was so uh, giving and patient through many hours of recordings because he remembers, you know, everything from his life growing up and then meeting my mom and their lives together. Um, and then I started doing research uh, through the Leo Beck Institute. I contacted them and the archivist there who is uh I always think of as the, the guardian angel of this book, um, stayed with me for years, helping me make connections to other academics and research opportunities. And slowly things started to come together. It took a while to figure out how to tell the story. And so it's sort of um, uh, the, developing the structure took, took a while. Uh, you know, you write a lot of pages and a lot of them end up in the... <laughs> In the trash, but you know, I think that's just part of the the writing experience, right? And when when your uh, mother left with her parents, you write about it in the book that it wasn't really easy to it, it wasn't easy to get out first of all, and that there were some factors that you discovered had kept them safe between thirty eight and I'm sorry, did they leave? They left in forty. 1940. 1940. Um, Why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Because you do write about that in the book. And I don't want to give anything away because it really is. And you just unravel a mystery. um, Mm -hmm. And it's so interesting. But that that particular part of it was was fascinating. Yeah, there were there were sort of several factors. Um, I feel like a lot of the stories of escape um, when you hear them, they they always sound unbelievable, actually unbelievable. You, They just strain credibility. But my conclusion is that for everybody who did get out, they have stories like this that, you know, hinge on good fortune, knowing somebody, coincidence, and, and just, you know, who knows, you know, the forces of the universe. But they, um, in the case of my family, there were several factors. One was that there was a, um, a foreman who was also the caretaker of the building. I guess we'd call that uh, sort of the concierge like you have in France. Um, it was a very beautiful old apartment building that they lived in. But this person who was the caretaker also worked for my grandfather, helping him manage his paper goods factory. And I know your audience can't see, but um, we will. I'll send you the posts. But there was a particular item that this factory made, which um, I'm showing you now, um, which was uh, my mother would try to describe it for us when we were little. She said, oh, it looked like a paper fan was made out of folded wax paper, and it was used to dispense powdered medicine. 
um, this particular item was made on a on a machine that you know they had in their factory, and the German government considered this item important enough that my mother said this is what saved my grandfather from deportation. So even after they took over his business, they kept him running that business because they wanted to continue making this little item. So, you know, sometimes I look at this thing and you think my family was saved by folded paper. Right. And it does look like a fan, but it's got a bottom on it as well. Yeah, Yeah. it's sort of like an accordion almost with little pouches. And then the pharmacist would fill these pouches, pull them off, fold them, and that's how medicine was dosed until pills came into use. But of course, during the war, uh, with shortages of everything, there would have been shortages of the metal containers that pills were dispensed in. And so this little item would have been, you know, still very, very much in use. Um, is still being, this is a new one, it is still being manufactured today in a company, uh, uh, by a company located on the outskirts of Vienna. Um, I did get to go to that factory and see the machine that makes these little items. Um, and so that was the first thing, was this, this piece of paper, this little piece of packaging. The second was that the foreman uh, did look out for the foreman and his wife um, who worked for my grandfather. They looked after the family. I'm certain that they must have brought in extra food. Rations were very, very short and Jews in Vienna had even fewer rations. So you had to, you had to live on something and I'm quite certain uh, that this family assisted them. Um, I know of another family, I do write about it in the book that was also assisted by this foreman and his wife. So it was clear that they were willing to help a Jewish, you know, more than one Jewish family that lived in this building. And then there was this other uh, element in the story, which is that, you know, in Austria, of course, you're surrounded by beautiful mountains, the Alps, it's extraordinary. And so it is a very usual common thing that everybody is off, you know, hiking in the Alps. It's just a thing you do. I would say here in the United States, it's a bit, you know, it's a bit more of a rarefied pursuit. So what I found in the family photo archive were, you know, these photographs of my grandfather climbing in the mountains. Um, And clearly this was his great passion. Um, He was a member of a Jewish mountain climbing club, which I did some research on as well. Quite fascinating that after the um, after 1922, the Austrian Mountain Club kicked out all the Jewish members, so they made their own. And uh, so this was clearly a passion for him. But what turned out to be a strange coincidence that uh, arrived, you know, came from doing a lot of research, is I found out that the very young vice consul at the American consulate in Vienna, he was also a very avid mountain climber. And when this coincidence happened, um, I will say I nearly fell off my chair. I was having coffee one morning and I had just typed in this man's name. And the only thing that popped up was an obituary written by somebody from the American Alpine Club. And I thought, oh my gosh, what is this? And then, then I understood that there was probably some contact because that's how you got 
appointments at the consulate, the lines were, you know, the lines were around the block and this was, you know, everybody was trying to get an appointment. So it's not unlike the way things are now, you know, how do you get anything? You call up 10 friends and find somebody who can help you. And this family was desperate to, to get out. So I think that may have happened, that they may have found somebody who knew that there was some man at the consulate who like who was a climber, you know, and was just as enthusiastic as they were. So anyway, that's a thread that I explore. Um, uh, the Brown family, uh, the family of this vice consul um, was incredibly generous with their time um, from a writer who just appeared out of nowhere. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, yeah. it's funny because that the research that you're doing, the people that you're meeting and contacting complete strangers, it, it's it, that's all part of the tale of how you were able to get the story out there completed. And there's in this in the scene that you're talking about where I mean, I say scene. I mean, this actually happened. But um, when your when your grandparents went to to try to get a visa, I think you include the numbers in the book uh, just to show how rare it it was. You know, they might have only had how many visa spots for how many people. I think when I did research, it's quite hard to get the actual numbers, but I believe the quota was something around forty thousand. So you can imagine the number of people who were trying to get out that in no way satisfied the need. My grandparents' visas were in the 20,000s. They were issued in February of 1940. So you can imagine that there would be no more after, after May. It's interesting, that scene that you're describing, I, one of the things I did in the book um, was that I had to imagine some scenes because there's nobody there to tell me. And that is one of the scenes that I imagined. But what I, what I felt was that I would take a few liberties to imagine the, this meeting, you know, these two people who met for who knows, 15 minutes, 10 minutes, and that was it. And that it was life altering. Yep. It was the difference between life and death. Um, and the, um, when I tried to imagine those scenes, um, I felt I had done a lot of research and that, uh, that the scenes were really based on, on everything I could read and that I had learned about how this process happened. Right. And there, there's a lot of tension in the scene. Um, and like, that's why I feel like it reads like a thriller, like a, you know, and you're like, oh my gosh, I hope, you know, they make the connection, you know, whatever. But I, 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 I think you're right. I think that's, I think that's what happened. Yeah, I think it's, it was just that, you know, I don't know how else to describe it, except that on the day when I discovered that this vice consul was also a climber, mountain climber, I, I felt that kind of tingly feeling Yeah, that happened a few times while I was doing my work where the little hairs on the back of your neck yes. start to, to vibrate and you know that you're onto something. And I just, so I just kept going with that. Um, again, the family was so incredibly gracious with their time. They sent me photographs. I felt like I, I wanted to get to know this man, you know, who made such a difference in my family's life. Yep. So, yeah. Very and interesting. What I found out was that my family was not the only one that he assisted. So I think he was, you know, in a, in a, in a terrible situation, making terrible choices and uh, that he did the best he could. 
Yep. And as you wrote, it affected his life as again, I don't want to give anything away, but it affected his life as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's, um, yeah, it's sort of a, uh, I think these kind of random encounters that happen in a life um, are, are so potent. You know, sometimes you cross paths with somebody in your life for just a brief moment. For some reason, you never forget them. I think that this was one of those, this was one of those moments. Absolutely. And, uh, and then it also parallels my own experience of doing the research and writing. I reached out to people far away. They were all strangers, you know, near, far in the United States and Europe. And one of the themes is, uh, was really just the extraordinary generosity that people showed me with their time and, and assistance to, a, you know, to a writer, <laughs> just trying to put together a story. So, you know, I was very grateful for all of that, you know, for all of people's time, you know, to help me. Absolutely. Yeah. And you're, you're a journalist. I mean, you're a journalist as well, really. Well, in this case, yeah, yeah, you have to become that. You're reporting, you know, you become a reporter about your own life and about this topic. So a lot of it, I, I, even though I am Jewish and this story of the Holocaust is part of, you know, my history, there was a lot for me to learn. And a lot of what I learned was I really wanted to, in fact, answer a question that I think a lot of Jewish people have about that time, which is how did, how did the Jews of Austria not know the danger that they were in immediately? Why didn't they see because it was happening in Germany next door, why didn't they all leave earlier? But what I found out was that the Jewish community in Vienna was really, um, it was very vibrant and it was really integrated into the culture. So it would be sort of like if you said, you know, um, aliens are about to land from a, you know, a warlike planet and they're going to kill us all. And you would say, well, no, I don't think so. And I think that was that the, the Jews of Vienna really did feel um, protected in some way. Um, and, and really, they again, they just were so um, totally integrated into the culture of music and art and science and literature. I think they felt this was their place, Vienna was their place, and that they would not be they couldn't have imagined what would happen if they would be turned out of their own of their own city and country. So they were Austrian first. That's how they felt. Yeah, yeah. I don't like to use. Um, I used to use the word assimilated, mm. but actually, after talking to um, a few historians, I, I try not to use that word anymore because it's sort of assimilated to what you know. They were they felt completely in tune with this culture. This was their city. Uh, just like your home is your home and my home is mine. You know, it's sort of um, that to them, they felt completely at one with this place. It was a, a very particular culture. Um, and then, of course, in 1938, as soon as the Nazis arrived, it was over, just like that. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And the, the other, you actually visited Vienna several times. Mm-hmm. In order to get the story, and in you described about your grandfather, who, by the way, you have pictures in the book, and quite a handsome man. Yeah, very handsome fellow, <laughs> and must have been quite charming as well um, mm-hmm. to to navigate what was going on. And he owned the building. He was a partner in the business. He was a partner in the business. The business was owned by the business was called Adolf Eisenman und Son. So. 
was uh, Adolf, by the way, was just a very common name. I have an uncle, my uncle was named Adolf. This was not an unusual name. Um, so the business, that was the business. And then he joined as a partner and uh, after the First World War. And it, then eventually he was 50% partner. He ran the business. And then his, uh, Mr. Eisenman's wife still lived in the building. My understanding is that the Eisenmans owned the actual building, but my my grandparents and my mother and my uncles lived there in a very comfortable apartment. So the commute was was very short. So you know it all kind of worked out for the company because he just came down and went into the back courtyard, and that's where the factory was. So and, it was and sort of a live work situation. As got it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, and yeah. and the Nazis just took it. I, I think that's something people don't understand either. There's just one day it's yours, the next day it's not. Yeah, I, what happened was that as soon as the Nazis arrived, they started, the, the term they used was Aryanizing. So that they were taking Jewish businesses and they were being sold um, to, you know, to Aryan, new Aryan owners. But the problem in this case was that the new owner of this business did not know how to operate the machinery that made the little paper fan. And in fact, really couldn't run the business that was a very successful business. They made all kinds of things that a lot of what they did was um, soap wrappers with very ornate designs and made on lithography stones. And so they did other stuff. They also made uh, all kinds of other paper bags and things that were used for dispensing medicine. But, but this thing was really this little paper fan was was a big money maker and the German government really wanted to make sure that it was kept in production. So they kept my grandfather there running the business, even though he had relinquished control of the business. So got it. And and then one of your trips, you actually maybe got to see the the exact machine? I think it's the machine. Okay. So uh, there as people will find out when they read the book I, I met a person through the uh, brilliance of the internet, which occasionally is a wonderful thing. <laughs> um, and uh, that person um, took it upon himself to not only find this fan, I remember describing it for him in an email. I said, it looks like a paper fan. Maybe you can help me find it. He found it within a day. Really? It was just that I didn't really know kind of I'd never seen anything like it but I think maybe he had um and so at any rate he found the item and then the company that manufactures it and on one of my research trips he brought me to this factory and um it was a very emotional experience I think a lot of you wouldn't think that a machine could elicit that kind of emotion but I'd say that throughout this research and writing process one of the experiences I had was that I'd never met my grandparents. They both died before I was born, but I I felt very close to them while I was doing the research. And I felt like I got to know them um, as people, as, as humans, you know, who'd had a very rich life together. They loved each other. It was a very romantic relationship. And um, I seeing that machine was, was one of those experiences, just feeling like, I was now touching a thing that he had touched that he had repaired probably at times and kept, you know, an operation. And I sort of had a um, almost a 
tactile connection to my grandfather by being in his factory space, going to that factory to see that machine. And then other moments too, where I just felt it was almost, um, oh, at times it almost felt like a seance, if, if, if you know what I mean, that it was, I really did feel like I was taking some time travel. Yeah. And walking into the past and re-experiencing life as it had been at that time. Wow. Did you get any messages or anything? Well, any direct messages? Maybe you don't want to share it. (laughs) It was just a feeling, you know, that sometimes would come over me that I was on the right path. Yes. And that that if I kept going, eventually, I'd figure it all out. Um, Some things you can't figure out. There's just mysteries that you'll never be able to solve because there's nobody left who can tell me. Um, But I wanted to go as deeply as I could. Yep. Yeah. And the book is rich with different books that you read as well in order to understand the people and the history and to put all this together. We should probably give the audience an idea of the number of years that you spent researching. Or do we want to? (laughs) Well, I would say it was, it overlapped with the writing of my first book um, that I started that it was, you know, it's actually not a sequential thing. I was already kind of investigating before my first book came out. So I'm going to say a decade. A decade. Wow. All all told. Because, you know, the thing was that while this was happening, I was living, I didn't think I was writing a book. You know, I was doing other, I had other work. I was, you know, publishing my first book. And uh, I was also, you know, a mom and, you know, bringing up a child and, you know, you have your life. So it was all kind of happening uh, kind of in an overlapping way. It wasn't as if one day I decided, okay, I'm now I'm doing this thing. So life was going on. Occasionally I'd make headway. There'd be maybe months where I wasn't making any headway and I had no idea where to look or what to do next. So it was kind of a detective story, but that was unfolding in, in uh, real lifetime, not in not in detective movie time. <laughs> and for, yeah. for anyone who's listening who might be inspired to do their own research about their own families, it's not going to be as interesting as Julie's. I'll tell you that right now. No, I'm just kidding. But um, what would you say, were, were there any times when you said, I, I just can't do this? I, I'm just, I'm reaching a dead end here and I just can't go forward. You know, what kind of advice would you give to? Yeah, I would say that I had many of those moments. There were a lot of dead ends. Um, and sometimes I'd reached the wall and I didn't, I had no idea why I was doing what I was doing, whether to continue. Um, I would say in my family, I'm, I'm known as um, very persistent. So eventually that urge to continue looking would resurface and then I'd go after it again. And it, it didn't happen. It wasn't sort of a, a crescendo moment. There were these moments that really altered my searching and opened doors literally for me. Um, but they didn't happen in any kind of expected way. They, they kind of unfolded. Um, and then I, I would say that um, back to your previous question about books that helped me while I was doing this work, one of them, I kept it on my desk for the entire duration. <laughs> um, it's a really beautiful book called The Hair with Amber Eyes by Edmund Duvall. And what especially moved me about this book, which is very celebrated um, as a a Holocaust memoir, is that he also used 
objects as the entry point to his story. So what it was is that his family had passed down a collection of Japanese netsuke, which are those small carved animals. And, this and basically he follows the story of this collection as it passes from one member to the other. And I thought, oh, it gave me hope that I had also objects and photographs that were part of my story and that I might be able to use that as the, as the path. Um, the other two books I read that really were, I mean, there, I did read a lot very widely, um, all sorts of memoirs and, and books of history. There is a bibliography in the back for people who really want to get into it. Um, but I would say two books that really uh, kind of rocked my world, I would say. One book is called 1947 by uh, a writer named Elizabeth Asbrink. Um, it's available in English in translation. Um, you would not think that 1947 would be such an, you know, an important year, but the way she structures the book, you really see how this year, right, uh, two years after the end of the war, really sort of everything was kind of coming together, all kinds of cultural forces. And then of course, the aftermath of World War II, you know, Nazis trying to escape to South America, you know, everything. So it, she turns a year that maybe we would have forgotten about into something very pivotal. Um, the other book I can really recommend um, for every American <laughs> is, um, it's called Behold America. It's written by Sarah Churchwell. Uh, she's an American writer who lives in Britain. And it is the history of two very important concepts that we talk about a lot in the United States. One is America first, this idea of America first. And the second concept is the American dream. And she really breaks those down and shows how they've evolved over time. But one thing that is apparent from the beginning of her book is that America first, from the beginning, it started almost immediately after the founding of the United States, um, is, has always been xenophobic, anti-immigrant, it's always been a white nationalist idea from the very beginning. And this was something that um, I would say, I wish I could give a copy to everyone <laughs> that they would sort of understand uh, kind of what these words mean and how they've affected our, our national discourse. Got it. Thank you so much. We like to share those books with our listeners, and I'll put them in the show notes as well. It's just such an amazing story, and thank you so much for sharing it with us, Julie. Best of luck. Do you have some um, book events going on? Any yes, virtual things? Yeah, so there's lots of events happening. Um, if people would like to attend, they're all virtual. Um, you can go to my website, juliemetz.com, and there's an events page there and lots of things happening. Um, some of the events that have already happened, there'll be um, YouTube. There's a YouTube channel you can go to to watch some of the interviews that have already happened. So, um, and then, of course, uh, I'm on Instagram posting about things that I'm doing. So I hope you'll join me there. Yeah, I saw the post that you had about with your mom's pictures. Oh my gosh, what a pretty lady she was. She was very pretty, yeah. I'm sure very she's kind of, uh, glamorous in that sort of English movie actress style. I've 
never been able to pull that off myself. (laughs) (laughs) That's not true. That's not true. (laughs) I can attest because I can see you. (laughs) It's so true. Um, I wanted to mention your Instagram, Julie Metz Writer, and you can you can find um, a lot of great pictures and what's on Julie's mind at any given moment. Um, Mm -hmm. So best of luck. Again, the name of the book is Eva and Eve, a search for my mother's lost childhood and what a war left behind. Thank you so much for writing it and for sharing it with us today and sharing your story, Julie. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. It's been a real pleasure. Terrific. We'll have to have you back. Please. (laughs) (laughs) All right. We'll talk to you soon. And you are listening to Stories and Strategies for Women. You are listening to Stories and Strategies for Women podcast. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and leave us a review. Visit me at my website, ClaudineWalk.com. Drop me a note on Instagram at ClaudineWalk. Thank you for listening. We will see you next time.